If you've been thinking about going on your very first backcountry photography trip, I've got a treat for you in today's podcast. In today's podcast, I am talking with professional wilderness photographer, Dave Morrow, about some tips, tricks, and other things that you might find useful if you are planning your very first backcountry photography trip. I think that there's some incredibly helpful things in this podcast you may want to write down or jot in the notes section of your phone for later, because I think you're going to get a lot out of this podcast. Now, we go from talking about things like the mentality that you need to have when you're out shooting in the backcountry, all the way to things like what kind of gear you should pack, how to make your kit a little bit lighter and how you should pack your gear. I really think today's episode is going to be incredibly useful for you guys. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into my conversation I had with professional photographer Dave Morrow. All right. Well, I'm super excited today to be joined by Dave Morrow. There's honestly probably not a better person to talk to when we're talking about backcountry photography. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you go ahead and start by just telling us a little bit about yourself uh, in case any of our listeners are not already familiar with your work. All right, man. Thanks for having me. So I have been a landscape photographer for about 14 years. I primarily focus on backcountry and hiking and wilderness photography. It's the only thing that really gets me excited to go out and take photos. And I got into that about eight years ago now. So I've been doing it for a while and always trying to find new wilderness locations, off trail locations to get into and mix the exploration part of just being out in the wilderness with landscape photography. And if some good shots happen, great. If not, still fun to go backpacking. Absolutely. So uh, in this podcast, I guess I really want to talk about how people can prepare for their first backcountry photo trip. You mentioned that that's really the thing that draws you to the, uh, the, the photo opportunity in the backcountry. What, like, tell me what really is the draw to you for backcountry photography that makes it feel different or feel more rewarding to you than just say driving in your car and getting out at a viewpoint and taking a photo. What, what really is the draw to backcountry photography? So the first few years that I did landscape photography, probably like everybody else, this was back in like, I don't know, early, mid 2000s. I was just like on Flickr and I don't even think Instagram was out at that point, but I would just try to find locations that people went. And most of the locations people went were just like roadside or like a mile hike in or something. And I would go to all those. So like all the hot spots, basically, which a lot of people still shoot, which can be great for learning how to shoot and how to learn composition, stuff like that. But after doing that for a few years, it just got boring because I learned how to shoot well. That's not that hard to do. And I learned how to easily find locations online. That's not that hard to do. It's all a good learning process. And then I was like, okay, how can I motivate myself? So I started just going out backpacking. I live up in Washington state. So there's a ton of good backpacking anywhere on the West coast really has a lot of good backpacking. And from there, I just got addicted. So at first, just like everybody that first gets into backpacking, I carried way too much gear. And then I slowly optimized that process. I come from an engineering background. I used to do aerospace engineering. So my brain is always just trying to optimize stuff to remove all the clutter and get down to what's really necessary. And that just happens to mesh with backpacking and photography really well. So once I got a taste of designing a backpacking trip. And these are all beginner trips at first. I wouldn't recommend starting with anything big because you'll just 
be annoyed and quit, but start with something really easy. And I just got hooked and you'll find that instead of like looking online for compositions that people already shot and trying to go shoot them, you have to learn how to survive in the wilderness. You have to learn how to pick your own compositions. You have to learn how to read weather and just the challenge of all these overlapping subjects was really enjoyable. So it just kept me coming back and it's something that I just can't stop doing now. That's what I've devoted my entire life to. And the cool part is, even if you don't get any good shots, just being out and hiking every day is just a fantastic experience. So hopefully that's a little bit of an overview. Yeah, no, I think I think that is just just perfect. Um, I think one thing that um, definitely I have learned over time, like you said, optimizing the gear, getting the weight down. Like the first time I went backpacking, I was probably carrying 50 plus pounds. And I mean, I've gotten it down now to where you can go 25 or 30 pounds. One thing that I think is really interesting, uh, put aside all the backpacking gear and the best lightweight stuff and all that, but when we're just looking at photography gear, what are the things that you're packing with you on your outings, especially? especially if there's anything that you think might be out of the ordinary that a lot of people might not think of, or if there's certain things that you think a lot of people carry around for front country photography that they might want to leave behind for backpacking. Does that make sense? Absolutely, man. Uh, this is one of the things that I had to learn as well. All this stuff's a learning process. So anything that I talk about, it's not like I just suddenly had all these great ideas. It's just going and doing it and you're going to find you make a lot of errors and from your errors, you can upgrade it. So if you're just starting out, don't feel like you're going to get the perfect solution at right away. I'm at the point now where I probably optimize my systems like 95% of the way, but there's still some stuff to learn. But when I take people out on workshops, this is the real interaction I have with people that are just doing normal photography, usually not backcountry photography. People carry way, way too much photography gear. A good example of this is a lot of people own a lot of lenses and a lot of their lenses overlap with focal lengths. So they might have like a wide angle lens that's like a 14 to 35. And then they might have like prime lenses that also rest inside the same focal lengths or something like that. And what's hard about this is that the more lenses and camera gear that you own, the more things that you have to learn. And the more things that can also break and it also just costs you a lot of weight. So you get the decision fatigue. So what I recommend to people is carry the minimal amount required. I have one camera body and two lenses. I have a Z7 camera, which is good. Uh, you could get like a D810 or like a D850 or something like that. The only reason I have a Z7 is because it's a little bit lighter. The rest of the settings are about the same. And then I have a 14 to 35 millimeter wide angle. I used to carry an F 2.8 wide angle, but I realized that with better camera sensors now, you could carry an F4. It's a lot lighter and you can just crank your ISO if you want to do night sky stuff. It's not going to be quite as sharp as like an F 2.8 for night sky stuff, but I really don't notice the difference, especially considering most people are viewing your photos on a screen that's way smaller resolution than the camera. So for example, Absolutely. like a Z7 is like 8,000 pixel wide resolution. So I edit on an iMac, which is like a 5,000 pixel resolution. So it's not like you're ever going to see the full size of these pictures unless you're making huge like billboard size prints. So just go for like lighter, cheaper lenses. If you have like a 14 to 35 F4, and then the other lens I have is like a I think it's a 20 28 or something like that to uh 200 and i used to carry a, a 28 to 300 millimeter lens and i realized that 
that 300 millimeter lens was a lot heavier and it wasn't that sharp from 200 to 300 millimeters. So what I do now is if I want a 300 millimeter shot, I'll just shoot at 200 millimeters and then I'll know that I'm going to crop down that large resolution photo to 300 millimeters when I get on the computer. So with better camera quality that they have now, you can get away with like a lot of stuff like this things I just noted and you're not going to notice any difference in image quality. So if you have a bunch of lenses, just pare it down to just two lenses. This is for landscape only. If you shoot like wildlife and stuff, you're going to need some more lenses. But for landscape, cover yourself from like 14 up to 200 and you're good to go. I've never had any problem shooting within those ranges. Uh, the other thing I see people do is they carry way too much like little things for their camera that they don't really need. Like one of those little air puffers for their to clean off the sensor, a um, bunch of little like gadgets and stuff. You don't need any of that stuff. Three batteries, camera, two lenses, and a little carrying case, and you're pretty much set. I don't have any other gear besides that. So that'll help your photography a whole lot just by paring down your gear. Yeah, I really couldn't agree with that more. I, for my backpacking setup, I'm just shooting with my, my A7R4 and then a Tamron 17 to 28 and a 28 to 200. So really similar to what you've got. And not only does it, A, save you a lot of money by only having to buy those two lenses, but also having those apertures that just open up so incredibly much is just not always necessary. And then, like you said, I really appreciated the point of you pointing out that uh, maybe having that F2.8 lens, it might be ever so slightly sharper, but viewing it on a screen, it just, it just doesn't make a difference. And especially these days uh, with all these different softwares and post-processing, there's so many ways that you can fix that sharpness that it's just not worth spending the extra money, carrying the extra weight and having the extra lenses. So really agreed with that. Um, one thing that I did want to ask you about, I personally don't like them, but I wanted to get your opinion. A lot of people that are backpacking, maybe you have seen them. I'm sure you've seen them, uh, are using the Peak Design Capture Clip. Are you familiar with the Capture Clip? I am. What, what's your thought on it? Tell me what you uh, think about just, it. Just unnecessary complexity. Um, okay. Just get like a little, <laughs> just get like a little two millimeter cord on Amazon um, or wherever. Like a just like a two millimeter utility cord. Just use it for your camera strap. It'll save you a lot of weight. You don't need to unclip your camera strap. Uh, anything that you see on your camera that could break and that's not providing like a ten x upside to your photography just get rid of it. If something's not a 10 X upside, it's just adding complexity to your life. The other thing, like when people look at cameras, like you said, you use Sony stuff. I use Nikon stuff. People look into this way too much. Sony and Nikon are great. Just get one of those cameras. Um, Canon, the glass is great. The sensors are horrible. If you're shooting at Canon, it's fine, but your sensor's just not going to be able to handle as much as a Sony or a Nikon. Unfortunately, um, it's not like you have to sell all your gear and get new stuff, but eventually in your camera journey, you'll probably realize if you have a Canon that it's maxed out and it's giving you bad results at that point, you could say to yourself, is it worth upgrading? But don't worry about looking too much into camera gear. What I always do is I get a new camera. When I do, I get the best camera possible and then I keep it for 10 years. I don't even look at camera gear because like you could shoot with a D800 now. It came out like 10 years ago. It's still a fantastic camera. And the sensor's not that much better on a Z7 or a D850 than on a D800. It's not that noticeable. So just stop following blogs that always tell you to get the newest camera gear. Just work on your shooting, work on your editing, and then you're good. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I'm also in the same boat. I usually upgrade my Sony camera every other 
uh, upgrade as opposed to every single one. So definitely agree with that. One thing that I had marked here that I definitely wanted to ask you, I know you are a big hyperlight guy and I don't want to talk too much about the backpacking aspect or the backpacking gear. I mean, um, but I did want to know how do you pack all this gear in your bag? I know I've got just a little insert bag that I throw inside mine, but I'm wondering on your bag, how are you packing your camera stuff and all your lenses to keep it safe? I just put all my camera stuff in a, what is it called? Uh, F-stop ICU, like the smallest ICU that'll fit. An ICU is just like an internal compartment. It's basically like a zip top cube that has a few little dividers in it. Uh, whatever the lightest is that'll fit all your gear. I think mine's like the small size of the F-stop ICU. And I just chuck that in the top of my bag. Yeah, that that's perfect. I the bag I have a bunch of those F stop ICUs, and I've really liked using. Um, I want to say it's made by Tenba. It makes a little insert bag that's a little bit smaller and lighter than those. But F stop ICU bags are great for anyone out there that owns a camera backpack. It's those ICUs are exactly what's inside the camera backpack. Usually, you can take them out. So that's a great piece of advice. Um, so I the, want to the big the, thing I'll throw in there about camera backpacks is that. They're great for day hiking, but they're way overly complicated. Absolutely. Even for day hiking. Like they have tons. If you see a backpack that has like tons of zippers and tons of compartments and you only have two lenses and a camera, then you're always going to be looking for stuff. So like the Hyperlite bags you're just talking about, it's basically like a stuff sack. So it's like a roll top stuff sack that's really big. It's made out of waterproof Dyneema material. Dyneema is just a like a waterproof composite material. And then you can put some compartments in there that are basically like uh, organization compartments that don't attach to the pack. And then you always know where everything is. If you have a bunch of zippers and stuff, it's just extra weight, extra complexity that's going to break or that's just going to make your life more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly uh, if you are a photographer out there that is going to go backpacking for the first time, you definitely need to get a different backpack. That's not a camera designated backpack. Dave is a huge advocate of the Hyperlight packs. I'm a big fan of the Osprey packs, depending on what you want. Um, there's a lot of different options, but definitely I think Dave and I would probably both agree that you do not want to go backpacking with a camera designated backpack. Yeah, I guess it, for backpacks and backpacking, when you first start, if you have a credit card and you don't care about the cost of things and it's not going to put you in debt, just go with the best stuff you can get your hands on. Because if you really like backpacking in two years, you're going to upgrade all your stuff anyway. It's kind of like buying, when you first get into photography, you buy like a crop sensor and some crappy lenses. And then two years, you realize you have to sell it all and buy new stuff. You should have just bought the good stuff to begin with if you're going to go all in. So like for somebody like me, I'm if I do something, I'm just going to go all out. So that's why I just buy the best stuff I can get my hands on. It lasts longer. And when you're actually doing wilderness photography and backpacking, you need stuff that's going to keep you dry because one of the biggest failure modes or dangers is getting wet and getting cold. And there's gear that can make sure that you don't if you use it the right way. That's one of the big reasons I use Hyperlite stuff. Um, I'm impartial to brands. I just try to pick what works for me. So might have something else that works better for you. So just pick that. Absolutely. That is uh, great advice. And I think that to kind of piggyback off that the next question I wanted to ask about is obviously there's a different mentality when you're shooting photos in the back country. Unlike when you're out in the front country where say you're going to drive, driving your car and get out of the viewpoint and you might hike a mile and shoot sunset and then you're going to head back to your hotel. Obviously being in the back country is much different because you've got to make lots of decisions. So how does this, uh, 
how is this mentality different? And then is there anything in particular that you think that a novice might not expect on their first trip, like some advice that you would give them on their first trip going into the backcountry, thinking about photos in mind while also thinking about the backcountry adventure? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I guess there's two different categories of photographers here. Number one category of photographers are people that are still learning to shoot. So I would put people in this group that if, if you step up to a scene and you have to think about your settings and your subconscious and your hands aren't just automatically moving, at that point in the stage of learning, you should just be shooting as much as possible and constantly trying to refine what makes good compositions and why you failed at specific shots. So like if you're shooting all the time, don't just shoot all the time and then go back to your computer and then never look at the images. When you're learning, you should be looking at the images and picking why some images are good and some aren't. Once you get past that stage, I would actually recommend to not shoot at all unless the images are awesome and the light's really good. So if you don't have really good light on the scene, if there's not really nice color, if there's not really good light over the landscape, I don't even get out my camera. And this happens a lot. Like I might take three or four images on a 10-day backpacking trip at most, but I'm not coming home with my memory card full of a bunch of garbage images and I don't have to sort through them all. So when you're learning, take as many as possible so you can learn. But once you have the camera settings and technique down, shoot less and spend more time looking for good images. And then when they appear, that's when you should be doing the shooting. Yeah. That, I mean, that is great advice. And honestly, I'm relieved to hear someone else say that because I'm always the guy that's out there. And if there's other photographers, I'm the guy that's like, I maybe take four or five photos, call it a day and that's good. And everyone else is still shooting. And I, I'm just kind of sitting there thinking, why bother taking an image if it's not good, if it's not something I'm going to edit? I already know I'm not going to edit this. So I, I do very much appreciate you kind of telling other people that, you know, it's okay to go out there and not shoot images if the light's not good. I mean, sit out there and enjoy it. Uh, once you've already kind of learned, wait, wait and take those photos when they really count because there's no point in throwing extra images on the memory card that you're just going to have to go home and waste your time sorting through. Um, so Absolutely. Just fantastic I, advice. I think the other thing to throw in there is a lot of people don't use a shooting workflow. And by workflow, I mean order of operations and how you select settings and why you're selecting the settings. And a, a lot of people will just shoot and they'll feel like they don't know anything about photography and they won't learn because they don't actually have a logical reason while they're making different decisions in their shooting process. If you can create your own workflow of select this is why I do at least. So like I'll step up to the scene, I'll pick a composition, I'll level my camera. And then the first thing I always select, I shoot in aperture priority mode. The first thing I always do is select the F stop. If I select the F stop and it's wrong, then there's not really a point of selecting the other settings. What the F stop does is it sets the aperture diameter and that's going to control the amount of light that comes into the lens. After I set the F stop, I'm selecting whatever the shutter speed I want for the shot is. For 95% of shots, your shutter speed doesn't matter. You can just think about this. The only time shutter speed matters is if you need a really fast shutter speed to freeze something that's moving in place, or if you want to use longer shutter speeds for like water movement and different detail and stuff like that. But for most shots, that doesn't exist. So why aperture priority is nice is because once you select f-stop and ISO, it's automatically going to pick a shutter speed for you. And for 95% of the shots, that's completely fine. So it's removing choices you have to make. The other thing that I would recommend to people is shooting aperture priority. Fantastic unless you're shooting night sky. The only time that you wouldn't want to shoot aperture priority 
is when there's not enough light in the scene for your camera to meter it correctly. That's the only difference between these two. I have a bunch of writing on my website. You guys can check out. It's davemorrowphotography.com. And I have a bunch of writing on why this matters if you want to look into it more, if it doesn't make sense through this uh, quick overview. So on my camera, my ISO is always set at base ISO. The only time I'm going to change ISO is if I have my f-stop set Aperture priority picks the shutter speed, but I determine that I want that shutter speed to be faster or slower, then I'll change ISO only in that scenario. So aperture priority is great because it just really minimizes all the decisions you have to make once you get used to shooting with it. A lot of people shoot manual and I watch them shoot like sunset or sunrise. And as the light changes, they constantly have to adjust their shutter speed or their f-stop to maintain the right exposure in the image. And it's just not really necessary. If you expose to the right, which is ideal for landscape, you want to collect as much information from the scene as possible using exposed to the right. And then you can just darken it down in wherever you edit your raw files. And you'll have the most information from the photo without clipping anything. And you'll have a lot more dark details that you can use for the shadows. So the combination of those two can simplify a whole lot out of your camera technique that you don't actually need to do. So when you're first learning, shoot with that method all the time, then shoot with manual and you'll see over time as you learn how much harder manual is and it's not giving you any benefit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is just some great advice on setting your exposure. Um, jumping to a little bit different topic. Uh, I find uh, when I am out backpacking that usually the best photos come after the absolute worst weather and the least fun experience of sitting out there. Do you have a, that similar experience? And can you just speak to kind of how the weather affects photography in the backcountry? Yeah, for sure. So when a lot of people plan their photography trips, at least from what I've seen, they'll plan it in the summer, probably the worst time to go take photography in the landscapes. Um, and this so, is just, are you talking backcountry or all, all it, kinds of all, all photography? You can okay. apply this to all photography. Uh -huh. So summer is going to give you it. First off, uh, you guys out there, you can go on this website called Wendy W I N D Y and you can learn how to use it. Wendy is fantastic because it gives app. you a really good in-depth view of the weather and it teaches you how to read weather. So whenever I'm looking to plan photography trips, I actually am just waiting at my house for good patches of weather to roll in maybe five days before and I'll leave then. Good patches of weather mean an undulation between really stormy weather and nice weather. And what you want is you want to hit the transition from a storm leaving and more milder weather coming in because as the storm leaves, usually it'll break on the horizon and then you'll have light poking through and it can hit all the clouds. If you're shooting under clear skies all the time, you might as well not even take your camera out of the bag. And this is a hard thing to learn because when you first get into backpacking, a lot of people still look for sunny stretches of weather to go backpacking in. If you want the best landscape photos, you want to look for the worst weather. And as it transitions to nicer weather, that's when all the good shots come. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one thing that I always recommend to people, uh, cause I, I do understand that obviously not everyone is doing this full time and not, ev and people have a Monday through Friday job. And so one thing that I always recommend to people is, you know, if you've got a trip planned and you're going out there and it is uh, good weather for backpacking, also known as bad weather for photography. One thing you can also do is kind of shift your focus and really focus on night photography where clear skies do help you. So that's one thing that I like to do in the backcountry. Are you doing much, uh, 
backcountry photography at night or do you have any tips for people that, like I said, are in that situation where they've already got a trip planned and they can't adjust the dates because they've got work or whatever that may be? Yeah, that's a tough one because if you have a set schedule, you're going to have to work way harder to get good photos. If you can't watch the weather and gun trips, you it's, it's just way harder. And I know when you're learning, most people aren't going to be full-time photographers or they might never be. Uh, I would just say that's the number one benefit of backpacking. If you have a set trip plan and it's all clear skies and you're going out backpacking, it's still a great trip and you can have a great time. You can take some night sky photos, you can put long days in on the trail. But if you have a trip plan and you're just doing day hikes and it's like a photography trip you have planned and it's all clear skies, then at least for me, the motivation's gone because the light's not going to be that good. It's just going to be harsh, clear sky light. And you might be able to go find places like early in the morning or late in the afternoon. You could shoot in the forest or shoot waterfalls and stuff. But just learning how to read the weather and becoming really good at the different weather patterns wherever you live can save you so much time for getting better photos. And then you can just be really precise in your actions instead of just taking a lot of photos and not getting good, very many good ones. Yeah, absolutely. Like, like Dave mentions, it's just, it's so great if you live in an area where you know of some good photo spots, because then even if you do have that schedule where you've got to work Monday through Friday and you only have a couple of days off, you can still uh, look at those weather patterns, learn those weather patterns, and you can still maybe jump out for a sunset after work because you see that there might be potential of something good. So it's always great if you live in a scenic area. Uh, I think that's one thing that we are so lucky for in the West. I live here in Southern Utah, just outside Zion National Park. Great place to be. I know Dave lives up somewhere up in Washington. Um, also just a great place to be. So many different scenes, uh, to photograph. Um, anyway, so lastly, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but will you finish us off with just like the number one tip that you have for people that want to capture better photos in the backcountry? I know we've talked about a lot of different ways you can capture great photos, but what is like the number one tip that you would give someone if they're new to the backcountry and they want to capture some great photos? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Turn off your YouTube, turn off blogs, turn off everything after you have a basic understanding of how f-stop uh, works, how shutter speed works, how ISO works. It's all noise. What you should be doing or what I would recommend doing is once you understand the basic physics of how a camera works, just go out and shoot constantly and edit constantly and just teach yourself in a way that you can understand how things work. Because when you're constantly taking in new information, hoping that that'll give you this secret tip that you can now become a good photographer, that's all not going to help you. The only thing that's really going to make you better is just constant repetition and learning what works and what doesn't and studying what doesn't work so you cannot do it again in the future. You see people that have been taking photos for 20 years and they haven't improved that much. My guess would be is because they're not actually ever looking at the systems they used to shoot or why they're doing specific things. They're just repeating different things that they saw work for somebody else and they never actually learn. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Great advice. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Will you let us know um, where we can see your work, where we can learn from you? I know you do workshops. Uh, let us know where we can see all that so I can link that for everybody here um, because there may be some people that want to check out your work. If you haven't checked out Dave's work, I highly recommend it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you guys can just Google my name, Dave, D-A-V-E, and then Morrow, M-O-R-R-O-W. My website will come up. If you want to get some more tips on backpacking and 
the mix of backpacking with wilderness photography. I have a complete guide on all the gear that I use, which will give you a big head start. It's just stuff that I've learned over the last decade of being out in the wild. And you can just Google Dave Morrow backpacking checklist and that'll come up. Um, Everything else can just be found through my website. What an incredibly great conversation I just had with Dave. I think he's got some incredibly great information that you guys should definitely write down. Rewatch this podcast and take away this information if you're planning on going on your first backcountry trip this year, or maybe even if you have already been on backcountry trips before. Some of these tips are going to help you to reduce the weight in your pack and overall just give you a better experience when you're out in the backcountry. Now, down below, I've linked some of the gear that we've talked about in today's podcast, as well as linked Dave's social media information. So you can check out his website and his backpacking checklists that are so incredibly helpful. You guys really need to check them out. Thank you guys so much for listening to this week's podcast. We will see you guys next time. Have a great week. Bye-bye.